Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, tonight we're going to meet three characters. And these three characters, I will give a title. No, we'll call them talkers. You guys know any talkers? I know it sounds like I'm a talker and I ran on my voice. I mean, that's what happens when you yell at the kids and um, yell at the kids a lot at the house. I was going to say smoke cigars, but then some of you might think that I really do, which I don't, which would complicate matters, but I just said it anyway. <laughs> it's funny how you can play jokes on your own self. Well, we're going to talk about three talkers, and hopefully I'll make it to the end. But the word that is used here, it's a phrase in English, but three times in Greek is ho-legon. And it's a simple relative participle that means the one who is saying or the one who is talking. And this little phrase introduces us to three different people. The first person that we'll look at in just a moment is the person who says, I know him. He's claiming knowledge about God. And then there's the one who said, I abide in him. And then finally, we'll look at the last person who says that he abides in the light. Well, we brought it up earlier, but let's go to it now. The whole issue of behavior versus bravado, saying versus doing, actions versus words. You know, there's an old saying that I think is really true, and it encapsulates much of this chapter. But it's simply this. It says, talk is cheap. Right? Talk is very cheap. In fact, it doesn't cost anything to just let it roll out. But actions really reveal what is in a person's heart and their motives and what they're really like inside. The the actions reveal the motives. If you have your Bible open, look just to the left. uh, A couple of books and we'll go to the book of James. I cheated. I have mine marked. All right. In verse 14 of James chapter 2, he says this. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled. But you do not give them the things which are needed for the body? What is that profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is a God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But... Do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Faith without works or belief without action really ends up in nothing. If you were going to put it together and said, faith plus no works equals nothing. It comes up zero every time. And here's why. Because a person can continue to make claims, but if there's real, no real evidence in your life that that is true, it is a false claim. Now, before we move into this, I just want to back up a little bit and give you, I think, the person that has the greatest 
example in this area. And I'll speak of him. It's Jesus Christ. And in fact, if you'll just allow me, just look back up in 1 John chapter 2 to the first two verses that we covered at the end of our study last week. He says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins, but for also the whole world. Notice the good tone He uses here. It's a very affectionate, simple, loving tone. He uses the tone, children. And literally in Greek, it's little born ones. He says, if we sin... It gives you the idea that he knows that we're going to, but sin is a serious business, so we're admonished not to. But he said, if we sin, we have a parakletos. We have an advocate who comes alongside us, who is a champion, who has championed sin, who comes now as a counselor before the living God saying, yes, the things that are said about him is true, but here's the other truth. I have paid for every sin that this man, this woman has done. Then notice the next phrase here. He uses in verse 2 the word propitiation. It says he himself is the propitiation for our sins. The Greek word there uses hilasmas. It's a very interesting word that was used in Greek. Earlier on in the pagan world, it was used of sort of a, a, a sacrifice that would appease an angry god. But as it was transferred over into the Christian world, it became known as the appropriate or right payment for the penalty, period. In fact, a lot of imagery is used in the New Testament that points us to the fact that we were, as a people, sold into bondage, into sin. And... Jesus, so to speak, went to the marketplace in Greek, the Agora of the day, and saw us and purchased us the Hilasmas, or paid or became himself, his own body, his own person, his own life, the exact payment appropriate to release us from this. And that gives us the whole idea of redemption. But what I'm trying to bring out here is that Jesus Christ himself becomes the supreme example of what it means to not only speak, but to do. All of his actions supported his words. The two of them were in complete concert. There was no derivation between the two. And the blood that was paid, by the way, was eternal blood. And the price that was paid was paid for eternity itself. Eternal blood made an eternal payment. Jesus Christ, our redemption, went to the marketplace of sin and he bought the sins of the world so that he would redeem this group of people like us. You know, the Bible tells us, says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, everybody does this, so allow me to do it too. I'm new to this. But how many is all or how much is all? It's all. All have sinned. There's not one person who's got by. And I guarantee you, if you're thinking of a beautiful little infant, just give them enough time. (laughs) I mean, how many adults do you know cry for everything that they want? Anyway. (laughs) Hey, don't say anything. Carly, be quiet. Thank you. 
We're born into sin because of Adam and Eve, but we're sinners by choice, by nature and by choice. But he came to redeem us in a lost world. Now, why did he do this? Very simple. It's a verse that we all know. It's a verse that we've taught our kids. John three sixteen. For God so... Let's, let's say it together. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever shall believe in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's why He did it. It was love. That was the overriding motivation. In fact... The way that we view love in this world has no comparison to Jesus Christ. In fact, He was the true originator. God is the one who has shown us what love really is. The Greek language, basically in the New Testament, uses two words. These are the two verb forms of uh, words for, for love. There are four, but we'll just discuss two here, which is agapeo and um, phileo. Now, Phileo speaks of a brotherly love, and it is a love that is engendered by the relationship that one has to another. But agapao, or we may use it, the noun form is agape. This word speaks of a love that is wakened from the sense of value or an object that causes us to prize it. It's the quality of love that determines the character or nature of the love itself. Agapeo is love springing from a sense of the preciousness of the object loved. And that's the word that's used there in John 3.16. And here's the idea. Jesus has considered us so precious that he was willing to purchase us with his own blood. Now let me give you a good visual image. How many of you like to go shopping, say, at a store like Dillard's? It's sort of the peak here in Albuquerque, especially at sale time, especially at the Mood Night Madness sale where you can get everything for five bucks. Not that I've been to that every time, but it seems to be just an economical uh, boon. Well, all that said, we like to go shop for new things. However, most of us never go to the city dump To look for the object that you desire most. But that's what the world had become. All of the things in the dump are tarnished, dented, soiled, sullen. In such a way that you might just pass over them. But Jesus looks at this world and he sees the dump, so to speak. And again, I'm not singling anyone out. This is everybody here. He looks at the dump and he says... Ah, now, that object over there, this object over, in fact, all of this is so desirable and precious to me. And the value that I am now giving it because I love it, all of a sudden creates a new value in this object. And because he loved it, he could have just said, you know what? Um, I've looked at the world And I want to write a statement. I'll put it in the Bible for you people. And I notice that you're all lost in sin with no hope. But what I'll do is I'll just say, good luck. I love you and I hope you get out of it. Now, someone, especially a philosopher, especially someone on a college campus would say, well, what kind of love is that? 
There's no real love in some type of broad statement with no actions backing it up. However, we see his actions fulfilled in that he himself personally became the appropriate payment. Namely, a gruesome, crucial uh, death on the cross for a lost and sinful world, redeeming us from the marketplace. And this is what it means. Once something has been redeemed, it gives the idea of a purchase removing it from sale and completely freeing it from the possibility of going on to that sale block again. Completely, it's over with. I love what Samuel Rutherford said. He's a great preacher uh, that... um, I was about to tell you a whole historical background, but I don't have time now. Anyway, you just have to trust me. He's a great preacher. You can get his letters in the bookstore. (laughs) He says, Sinners can do nothing but make wounds that Christ may heal them. Make debts that he may pay them. Make falls that he may rise them. Make deaths that he may quicken them. And spin out and dig hells to themselves that he may ransom them. But it is neither shame nor pride for a drowning man to swim to a rock. Nor for a ship broken soul to run himself upon the shore of Jesus Christ. Alright, look with me at... 1 John chapter 2, and we'll look at verse 3. And we'll introduce ourselves to the first talker, the first character. He says, By this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word truly, the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. What are the commandments of Christ? What are the commandments? Now, throughout this book, you you see this constant reference to that which was in the beginning. We see the beginning of the world before the world began. The thought and the mind and the energy and nature of God existing, pre-existing this world. But then you see the existence of that which was beginning in the beginning of the gospel. The advent of Jesus Christ himself. (coughs) Excuse me. The two great laws we find in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. If you'd like to turn there, you can. If not, you can just write it down. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. The first, this is the first and the great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. The first one in verse 37 is love God. And you see reference to that in Deuteronomy chapter 6. But in verse 39, we see the second to that is loving your neighbor. And we see that referenced in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. These are the first and two great commandments. Loving God, honoring your Creator, having a true sense of humility and openness and honesty toward God, and then in turn, loving your neighbor, loving souls, loving people that God created. Over in the Gospel of John... Verse 13, we hear of a new commandment that Jesus gives specifically to the disciples. 
but it's very similar. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you shall love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. He follows it up again. In John chapter 15, he says in verse 12, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. And he says, You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for the things that I have heard from my father, I have made known unto you. Jesus' commandment unto them is saying this. Do you see the love that I have portrayed in my life toward you? This is my commandment. As I have loved you, now you love one another. And he gives us a little glimpse into what is going to happen in the next few hours. And it's simply this. Greater love has no man than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. Now Webster's Dictionary defines love like this. It says, The attraction, desire, or affection felt for a person who arouses, delights, or an admiration, or elicits tenderness, sympathetic interest, or benevolence. But the real definition that is afforded to us by this great and amazing God is that love is action. Love is denying yourself on behalf of others. Love is dying to yourself. Love is giving yourself. Love completely fulfills all the demands of the law. Period. In fact, if you notice the Ten Commandments, if you love you will naturally fulfill every one of those commandments. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to steal from him. If you love your neighbor, you're certainly not going to kill him, murder him, at least not on purpose. All right, back to the text in verse 3 of First John chapter 2. So, you say that you know God. Here's the talker. He says, I know God. Ha legon, I know God. One is saying, the one who's talking, I know God. Okay, here's the first condition for knowing God. For actually knowing God. Look at verse 3. Now by this we know that we know Him, if we keep His commandments. First condition, this if here is a conditional statement. It lets us know that, yes, you do know that you know God. If you do one thing, if you obey His commandments. Now what are His commandments? Love God and love your neighbor. Love each other as I have loved you. Give yourself for one another. This is the commandment. Now, it's not an option. You just, did you just get that? That's kind of scary. It's like this moment that we realize He's not just talking about an option here in our life. It is a command. And he says, this is how we know. There's a, there's a real acknowledgement that you are a believer and you really do know God if you behave like Him and if you obey Him. To obey, as it says in the Old Testament, is better than sacrifice. 
It's better than all the great songs. It's better than all the great things that you can say and all the prayers that you can make. To obey is the absolute highest because it lets God know and everyone else know that you value what he says more than you value your own right to refuse. His commands become your and mine marching orders. All right, that's the first condition. Now look at verse 4. We see the negative side of this. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. I can't make it any plainer than that. If you say you know, but you don't, you make him a liar and the truth is not found in this person. But look at verse 5. We have a confirmation here. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. And by this, we know that we are in him. God's love being perfected simply means the full completion or expectation of something's start. It means that it has started here, but once it is completely to its end round, that means the love of God is perfected in us. It has completed its mission when we begin to obey Him, which should give you and I hope. And that's what He wants to give here, is confirmation of that truth that simply says this. You want to know that you're doing okay? You want to know that you know that God's love is in you? You'll see it. In the way that you live. And the world will know that you're his disciple by the way that you live. All right, let's look at verse 6. And we see our second character, the second talker. He says, he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk as he walks. So, we have a guy who says, I know God. And the second person says that he abides him. And so he really doesn't say anything negative here. He simply just says this. If you say that he abides in you, you need to walk like him. The word there for abide is minnow. And it it means to dwell with richly. It means to take up and take up residence and abide with a person. The word therefore gives the idea of permanence and position, occupying a place as one's dwelling place, holding and maintaining unbroken communion and fellowship with another. I love what J. Vernon McGee, Dr. J. Vernon McGee said. He said, to abide in the Lord Jesus is to live in fellowship with him. To abide in him means to have communion, real relationship with him. Now we notice the next word that he uses him. If, if you say that you abide and you have a communion with him and you live with him, you ought also to walk like he walks. And we introduced this Greek word last week, which is peripateo, which means simply to have or order your life and your lifestyle. Your lifestyle, if you say that you have communion and and Jesus abides in you and you abide in him and the two of you are inseparable, then the way that you live and the way that I live, my behavior, your behavior should reflect the same type of lifestyle that Jesus Christ himself had. All right, let's look at the third character and final character. Let's look down at verse 9. This is the person who says he is in the light. Verse 9, 
He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. Love and hate are in opposition to one another, just as light and darkness are opposed. Wherever you have an absence of love, hate abides. There could be no ambivalence. It is either hot or cold. Love negates hate. And where love is not present, hate is present. He says, the condition here, if there is hate, there is darkness in your life. No light. Verse 10, we see the positive side. But he who loves his brother abides in the light and there's no cause for stumbling in him. The word that is used there for stumbling is scandalon. It's kind of neat. Sounds scandalous, doesn't it? But it means a trap or a stare. And he's saying this, love is light. And if there is love in your life, real love from God, a love that is self-sacrificing, it cares for others like Jesus did. He said, then you and I are walking in the light. We can see where we're going. Our path is lit and we're, we're following the, the ways that God has called us to. And there's no occasion or reason for you or I to be caught in a snare or stumble. Why? Because our, we are in the light with the Lord, even as he is in the light. Well, let's finish up in verse 11. We see the negative here. Blindness. He who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. That's what hate does. That's what walking away from God does. As as you walk away from him, you are walking away from the very light that would give you illumination in this world. Darkness. All right. I'll close with a quote from Warren Wisby. He says, You abide in Christ by believing the truth, obeying the truth, and loving other Christians, the brethren. Obedience, love, truth. If you are a true believer and find yourself out of fellowship with God, it is because you have disobeyed His word. You lack love for a brother or you have believed a lie. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.